All right, so Ronin Rescue Cast number 28. Can't believe it. We're almost into 30. And today we've got Jason Heinsohn with us via Skype. And Jason was the team leader this year's Grimp Day. And I know everybody's going great, another podcast on Grimp. But what we want to chat about with this particular podcast, and while we do understand there's a million ways to skin a cat or rig a rope, we're going to talk about the majority of the scenarios at Grimp and how we rig them. We'll kind of give you some of our background thoughts of it. But remember, this is a competition. There is a time factor in here, both the setting up of the scenario with the team lead, the amount of time we have to actually decide what we're going to do, and the overall time. And there's limitations that are put down by the organization in regards to what gear we have on us or what gear we don't have on us or what kind of uh, geographical locations get thrown in here. So with that, just kind of cut in here and go, uh, how you doing, Jay? Good. Good. Yeah, it's been a couple podcasts since we've had you on, but uh, I think this is a good one to chat about. Grimp Day 2019, and I think we want to start just with some general strategies. And you wanted to start off, first of all, just talking just about the leadership structure of this particular team. Yeah, you know, in regards to the leadership as well as how we actually all run the scenarios, the listeners should keep in mind that, you know, how we ran the scenarios aren't just how we run a scenario. It is also based on how we structured the team this year. Um, you know, team structure, team dynamics have a big uh, weighting on how we choose to do a scenario. We have a very inexperienced team. We're going to have a lot of oversight, a lot of very direct commands to every detail. We have a very experienced team. We can give general directions. So this year at GRIMP, and I'll, I say this quite honestly, I, I was very honored to be a part of the team we had. We had a, a, a very highly experienced team, um, uh, ex-military, um, uh, fire, uh, lots of rope guys, lots of guys who competed with uh, in lots of grimps, and us as a group, except for one person who did fit in there seamlessly with us, we've competed a number of times together, so we've been able to hone our skill a little bit as a group. Um, you know, recognizing the skill of the team, uh, my leadership approach is more of a of a, um, uh, gather ideas from everyone and have us as a consensus decide what we're going to do. Uh, there's even one case where I got busy. Um, I had to go uh, to the controller and figure out the next scenario. And I had the opportunity to know what this scenario was. And I came back, gave it to the team and said, hey, brainstorm, work on it. Um, while I, I finish up uh, 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 doing what I need to do from admin perspective. And this year, Grimp, they weren't as um, I don't know, militant or as controlled about uh, passing on information to the teams. They were a little bit more relaxed about it overall so um you know having uh having everyone be able to give their comments and then at the end of that obviously um i'd bring them together as a group and we'd all be happy with the decision uh the other thing is we really took on a it's funny before we went away this year we said are we going to really compete hard which we always compete or are we going in to enjoy ourselves and still compete well and, and we did the latter and we took the approaches that um slow is smooth and smooth is fast and we were able to keep that consistently throughout the whole competition. And that relaxed setting, coupled with our experience, really led to our success, I think. All right. So you're basically saying you had a high-performance team this year. And with a high-performance team, what are two takeaways to give folks from a leadership point of view in leading a high-performance team as opposed to, you know, a regular fire department team or a, a newer team? Is there a couple points in regards to leadership or things that you did do or that you didn't do because of the team that you had underneath you? Um, uh, what, one thing for sure was um, if there was, um, uh, what's the right word? If there was changes mid-scenario to be made, um, I didn't feel a need for them to check in with me. Early on when we were practicing I felt, I told the guys, unless your change is going to impact the whole system, I don't need to know. 
if, if suddenly you decide that, oh, that post isn't good to anchor enough to, and you know, based on your experience, and I, I trusted in my team, and, and they did have the right eyes to look at this, to change where their anchor place was because they had a better anchor, then go for it. But if it affects the whole system, then I need to know because I I need to maintain that that overwatch. So that was a really big thing. It really helped me. We didn't have to micromanage, saved on communication, saved on them explaining to me what they want to do. And then I have to go back and think about it. It just, there was no need for that, um, for that that very uh, specific overwatch. Um, a high performance team, how did you manage safety checks on this team? So that was my second point is safety checks. So um, the safety checks was a safety tech cross check were good. And it's something we started, um, we went to Grimp in China. Um, uh, Kevin Ristow was our team lead there. Uh, someone Mark and I've known for a very long time, like, you know, back in our, our uh, boot camp days. And, um, you know, it, it was basically, I want two people to check a system. So most times when we send someone to go over anchor something or look at something, usually they're going over in pairs. Maybe a high line is with far sides, the one, you know, thing on its own or a res lone rescue going down. So I, I look, say, has been safety checked and cross checked, which means the buddy with you has checked it itself. If yes, done, boom. Or uh, has it been safety check? Yep. There's no one there to do a cross check. Okay, talk me through it. There's the cross check. And all I would simply say is, did he safety check it? Which means they checked it and cross checked. If they said yes, cool, let's go. Um, you know, same thing for edge transitions and any critical points rather than slowing ourselves down and, 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 you know, beating that dead horse. Okay. Now, did you break the teams down at all? Did you create any sort of subunits or sub team leaders or assistant team leaders or whatever you want to term it as? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, and, and another great thing about having a qualified team is I think anyone on our team could have led the team. Um, so when I sent two guys over, I sent one, I established one guy as team lead of that, that team. We didn't have a um, long-standing grimp as a whole competition sub-team leads because, again, I feel I could trust anyone. And depending on the situation, I may say, okay, um, one of our guys, Damien, he's up there, and uh, he's the extra rescuer. Norm is the actual rescuer that's going to be with a patient. It makes more sense for where Damien's going to be. He can be rescuer team lead up in that position. Same with the riggers. Depending where the riggers are, whether it's yourself, Mark, or um, or Pat helping us with that, um, it, it didn't matter either. But if I wanted a little bit of extra oversight on site to have a better chain of command, span of control, I would just designate someone for that scenario as a team lead for that little aspect of that they're um, involved in. All right, so columns between the team here. I know we're pretty deep into the general, general overview, but columns, so we're radio, hand signals, what were we looking at there? Um, well, we were very fortunate this year. I happened to be at a conference and uh, ICOM, there's a little plug for you, um, radios was nice enough to sponsor us with seven radios. These radios, um, one of the, the restrictions we had is we couldn't have uh, frequency-based radios, the well, VHF, I guess it is, type because of uh, frequency issues going to another country. Um, so they gave us radios that are basically Motorola talk a lots on massive amounts of steroids. Uh, so this year, you know, as we were practicing, we realized that the radios were dependable enough. We didn't have to worry about hand signals. So either direct voice when we're looking at each other or our radio comms worked really, really good. Now, were you running earpieces at all for you or were you running just straight off mic? No, I, I, everyone had an option to put an earpiece in. Um, I actually have an older system I have that's moldable uh, hearing protection that has a port for me to plug my hearing protection into. That worked really good. Uh, there was no need for a throat mic or any sort of mic like that. Uh, we put the, the mic on an accordion up on our left or right shoulder, most of us, and the radio unit itself went somewhere down on our belt out of the way. I think that's the majority of us rigged it that way. And um, I never saw anyone get frustrated with the radio staying in place or anything like that. The only time we had a bit of a communication issue was, like ICOM told to us, 99% of the time it's user error, not depressing the mic long enough, not depressing first and then speaking. Typical comms 101, whether we learn in the fire service or the military, it's just basic radio use. Yeah, and it's interesting, and just for the listeners out there, in between scenarios at Grimp where we're in backpacks, 
Hence why the radios are getting hung low on the belt and not getting put onto a, a shoulder strap or something where that's going to interfere with your backpack. All right, so let's go into one of the fun ones here, the 70 or 75 meter climb, depending <laughs> on who you're talking to, on the bridge scenario. So for the listeners, the scenario was you could strip down as much gear as you want, but the gear that you brought over to the bottom of those two ropes had to move with you. You had to get your entire team up to the top of the bridge. You could use those ropes. You could bring your own ropes, whatever you wanted to. And then you had to haul your patient up there as well. I pretty much hit all the points on that one, Jay. Yeah, I think, though, we had to use our own ropes for the haul system. That's okay. all. We, didn't have to, we could use their ropes to ascend, but we had to use our own ropes for the haul system. So that means we had to take... Not all of our ropes, but we had to take the ropes we thought we needed up to the top of the bridge. Okay, so from your point of view, what, how did you push that out? Who'd you send up first? Who'd you send up second? All that sort of jazz. Well, just, you know, I won't say this for every scenario, but the starting one. Again, you know, I, I asked for ideas. I explained to everyone what we had to do, what the scenario was. And again, Max relaxes here at Grimp. It was like, okay, guys, you have time. Go plan as you need to. When you're ready, come back and tell me you're ready which was actually sort of nice. It allows us to put a little bit more thought into it. Does it take away the surprise factor? Yeah. But you could argue, too, at a real scene, you would take 10 minutes sometimes to, or five minutes at least to sit down and, and really plan, not just rush into things. Um, so uh, looking at it right away, we started talking about how are we going to approach this? What do we need to do? Um, so thinking about what we need to do, right away we thought it was critical to get two guys up top to rig the systems. And if we could get two guys up top to rig the systems, they could start hauling the rescuer and the patient up. Uh, during that time, two of the slower guys, Mark, you're included yeah. in that with myself, uh, <laughs> started hoisting, or sorry, started climbing up the uh, up the rope. And well, the let me just intervene here. So we threw yeah. two of the faster guys up rope first. And just for the viewers, that's a Sprat level three and a Sprat level two that went up there initially. Um Sprat level two is probably the youngest guy on the team. And then the level three, obviously, was in fair shape. And did they climb? Did they wait? Did they climb back up line? Did, you know, what did they, how did they ascend? So, so once we decided, just before they started ascending, once we decided all the gear we wanted, then we came over and we started ascending. So let me just touch on gear first, and then we'll talk about that. Um, okay. Gear, we said, how do we make it lightweight? What do we need? We took a consensus this year, Grim, for most of the time, we'll always be ready to rig to five to one. Because all the times in the past, when we go, oh, we'll do three to one, we're like, <laughs> oops, French. Um, why, why didn't we put a five to one in? So we said, okay, we want a five to one system. Then we on thought. Both lines, just so people understand, we're running five to ones on both lines. On both Not lines. giving us any more, but it's, that's how we're running it. Absolutely. Um, and, then, and then we thought, okay, well, how about, uh, what are we going to do for progress capture? You know, what do we need? Well, right away, everyone's like, let's take the clutches. They're brand new. They're fabulous. They've been doing a great job for us. But, you know, before coming, you know, a lot of times we were uh, replacing our IDs when we just needed to raise with protractions, right? If we don't need a lower, why are we fighting all that friction in the ID? The, the difference with the clutches, though, is we're not fighting that friction. But one thing we are fighting is the weight of carrying that thing up to the top of the bridge. The clutches are much heavier than protractions. So we decided that, you know, the most we're going to have to lower someone is five feet. And that's maybe if someone gets caught under an edge or something like that. Well, we can always piggyback in a long or something like that and, and get that little bit of a lower if we need to. So equipment wise, we took our pulleys, we took our rescue senders. And the idea was our, our main progress capture, which is also a pulley. We took pro two protractions up to lessen the weight of the guys going up and reduce the amount of gear we need to take up. And then each guy took one rope. Now, That's to max- the first two guys, you mean? The first, the first two, guys. two guys, sorry, yes. Yeah, the first two guys. We only took two ropes up total. Um, so the first two guys that went up had the ropes because the idea is they would get up, they'd rig quicker. Well, you and I, Mark, made our way up, up there. Um, uh, uh, but what we did to climb to make climbing efficiency is they climbed at the same time. We only had one set of ropes. 
So one guy, let's say we had blue and red. One guy used blue at his main line and one guy used red at his main line. And then they used the opposite ropes for their safety. This allowed them to climb up right behind each other. It's common practice. You know, we've done our grip block before and we don't have to wait for one guy to clear the ropes. So for gear when you're climbing, running ASAP locks on the safeties or ASAPs? And what were they running for their mains? Um, for their main lines, uh, chest ascender, um, a, a crawl, and then it depended. You know, we decided this year everyone going to depend on what they want to do. Um, most guys had a foot ascender on, um, and then a, a foot loop on a handle ascender. I know. I, I know. This time I went away from the arb technique, a little finicky, and I went to simply my chest ascender, handle ascender for uh, with a foot loop and a, a foot ascender for my other foot, and I basically inchworn my way up. All right, so the first two guys climb up there, they get to the top, what are they doing? So they had to, uh, you know, again, this is where I established uh, team lead to get up there. You and I are busy climbing. Uh, you know, I trust my guys. We just gave them, hey, get this set up, and uh, we knew they could do it. So once they get up, they had established an anchor for each protraction, because um, that's our progress capture as well. And they, then they had to establish a inline mechanical advantage on each line. And whether they needed to change a direction or not, we had a couple extra pulleys with us so we could do that. We had a really short pull. There was other stations right beside us, and they were very specific on our throw that we couldn't step over a specific girder or go too far left, too far right. So it, there was a lot of resets. But um, once we got up there, the guys had already had it rigged. They were already starting to um, haul up the patient, uh, sorry, the, the patient. And um, at that point, the rescuer was ascending himself. Um, once I cleared the ropes, the rescuer could ascend. And then because we got two people on ropes again. And then once all four of us got to the top, then the, uh, the rescuer was able to go on the stretcher and all four of us could hoist up the whole load. So the rescuer transferred over and climbed, and are you saying he transferred back then halfway up, or did he stay attached? Uh, what I remember, he transferred back um, so that we could haul them up, because we had four guys hauling up, up top now. It was, wasn't a big deal. Do you okay. remember differently? I thought he stayed and ascended his own ropes and just kept a lanyard on the stretcher, but I don't recall. This is one of the cases where, you know, um, the, the, uh, the skill of our team – you know, we may have changed on the way up because it'd be quicker and we were able to be so fluid that some of these little tiny nuances, um, whatever was the easier way we may have changed to. So um, I may have it wrong. Yeah, oh, I, get them I, up. Just, I don't remember it either way either. So, and, and once we got the guys up to the top, we felt pretty good. You know, we did a good job for a group of old guys for sure. <laughs> um, but uh, the proof is in the pudding. And at that point in the day, a lot of teams had already gone through. This was our third scenario of four for the day. And we were told we got the uh, third fastest time for up to that point to uh, to get the whole crew up there. So we're, we're quite happy the, with that. What was the most difficult part of that scenario? Besides climbing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I probably have to say um, – there's two parts. The hauling was difficult just because of muscle and working in a short throw with the four of us. We got into our little seven dwarf routine, though, and, and no problem. We figured that out. Um, uh, probably the most technical part of it all, which isn't technical in some regards, something was the edge transition. Uh, the edge transition was numerous object, objects hanging out um, uh, different distances from the edge. And not only that, not only once we got over the lower girder of the bridge, once we got the victim up, we had to get him up over a suicide fence up higher up. So that just involved a bit more uh, communication. Um, we had someone over the edge, which became something we did in almost every scenario, actually hanging at the edge to help the rescue with edge transition. Uh, we vectored the stretcher out over the edge, lifted it up over the suicide bridge and down. So that, that was probably the you know, looking at all the skills involved in this scenario, besides the climbing, the most technically taxing. And okay. I could see a team having difficulty. If they're not clearing that edge properly, they're going to keep getting caught in all these different obstacles. And that's the sort of stuff that slows you down. Or that's the sort of stuff you lose points for patient care. When you start flipping the stretcher on its side, we had one scenario where the stretcher went a little bit on its side, not too bad, but rightly so. 
control Noctos for it under patient care. Okay. Anything else on that scenario? Um, no, I think that's it. It was a really good team building scenario. And it was actually, even though we first looked at it and didn't like the height after China, um, it was actually another good scenario. Just, yeah. You know, we're, we're by being put forced in the situation, we're getting used to these big climbs and how we need to deal with it and how we pace ourselves. And um, I was really happy with how everyone did. Right on. So next, uh, the dam scenario. And this one here I laugh about because this is the true difference between Europe and North America. I don't think in North America they would have let us go anywhere near where we were on this dam because if there was any sort of incident at all, you were right into the drown machine. <laughs> like, yeah. But that's Europe. So basically this scenario was almost like a confined space. It was, what, about a two-foot by two-foot hatch going down into the floor onto a sloping ladder uh, that went down a level that was about 12 feet, and then the patient was another 12 feet on another separate level down below. Is that about right? Yeah, let me just set the dam first. The dam, just so everyone can see it, is not a typical dam we you know, see like at Seymour or Cap or something like that. There was a dam across the river. Uh, there was a number of weirs that they could use to control the flow, but all the mechanical equipment that operate each rear was in a long house across the top of the dam. So you had this dam, this long big building along the top, and there was supports that go from the top all the way down to the dam, and in between the supports was the weir. Um, where the support was, was a long finger running parallel to the direction of water. Each team had one of those fingers to, to, to conduct a rescue off of. And the patient was down on the finger, which was almost water level. And I agree with you in North America, we wouldn't be able to go anywhere near there. They even said while we're there, uh, just be careful about the big gears because at any time they could move. So don't get a finger in there. <laughs> we're talking these big two inch tooth gears everywhere. And it was like, yeah, just make sure you don't touch them. No lockouts required. Okay. Um, so, and the idea was, we had to get the patient up two stories up back into the shack where all this uh, mechanical is. So uh, just give you a better image of the dam. And, and yeah, if you fell over the railing, which we were climbing over, you'd be in the drink. Absolutely. So, so fall protection was obviously an issue on there. Um, yeah. How did the team get out on this one? Um, so it was, it, this, this is our bread and butter for Ronan. You know, although going through the hatch down to the open to the finger area, you know, it was all open to the water. But you're absolutely right when you said it's no different than a confined space. We're going through a hatch. We're going down an inclined set of ladder. Uh, and then we're going down a vertical ladder to someone who may have fallen all the way through both hatches down to the bottom. And we needed to pull them out. The only difference about not making a confined space is we didn't have our walls all around us and we didn't have to worry about atmosphere. But everything else to in regards to anchoring obstacles um, was classical confined space for us uh, and you no know, as a team we said what are we going to do um, uh, we thought how are we going to get them up it's basically almost like a, a, a two pitch scenario same as like climbing away two bluffs to get someone up we had the vertical ladder and we had a vertical uh, the incline ladder and the ladders weren't in line with each other actually the vertical the the incline ladder was actually blocking and over the farther edge of the vertical ladder so we had to get a guy up back up around and bring him up um uh, uh the rigger um the the rigger put in charge for that one decided to do a you know a, a drop loop um you know borrow some of the techniques we've learned from uh europe here and we decided to drop a single loop all the way down so we got our two to one right away and then um, we'd use that as our mechanical advantage to pull the patient all the way up from the bottom uh, halfway up, manipulate around the incline ladder and continue going up all the way to the top without having to de-rig or re-rig the system. For a safety, we simply used an ASAP and the ASAP was able to be used whether the ASAP's on the patient itself or um, uh, whether we used a pitch head scenario where the ASAP's anchored up top. Um, and the rescuer, because uh, you could climb up right beside the patient, we didn't have to hoist up the rescuer. We could focus and just uh, put our effort into getting the patient up. The most taxing part of it was probably uh, getting the patient um, through the hatch. It was really tight. There was metal obstruction sticking out. 
So, um, you know, slowing down a little bit and thinking what side the metal obstruction should be as you get the patient through. And we put it on the stretcher, the back of the stretcher side. So in case the, the patient slipped a little bit, I'd rather get them to get a wall in the face than a piece of metal sticking out from the wall. So. All right. On. So you say it dropped the two to one all the way down to the bottom. Did you deviate it so that it got down there or did the, the rescuers in the hole deviate it just like a human deviation? Did they rig it with a grill on? Do you know? Um, we just basically used edge pro and we deviated it around the ladder. There was talk about dropping it through the ladder. And once we got the patient up halfway, disconnecting and taking it out around, um, uh, some things there, we had to think about fall pro, uh, continuous connections because the patient was going to be up over the railings. So we had to maintain fall protection and control the patient should they drop. So we ended up dropping the drop loop down around the side of the incline ladder and drop straight down. We used Edge Pro over that edge. Um, we used a, a number of uh, of our, our, our rope guards, our soft rope guards that allowed the ropes to move through it. And then um, as the patient cleared the vertical ladder, we we're able to swing them around onto the incline ladder and not have to change the system at all. We just used a, uh, like a, a solid point deviation. Didn't have to use pulleys or anything like that. Not enough. We had two guys pulling up top. Um, not enough friction to to force us to make the system more complicated and there's also two on the bottom guiding so there was guys guiding too so if the stretcher hit an edge or whatever we actually had three person three of the personnel below as team lead i was in the middle on the incline ladder uh um, and the two other rescuers were positioned one and then another guy below to help guide the stretcher which you know maximizes suspension of the stretcher and minimizes rubbing against edges and against any sort of object that may even add a little bit of friction, making it more difficult for the, the riggers up top that are hauling. Uh, one of the key things up top was, um, was rigging that anchor nice and high. Um, and, uh, you know, the riggers did a great job getting up as high as possible. There's lots of metal there, but the higher we get, the more throw we got. And then also we have to think, once we get the patient out of that hole, because the patient's in the stretcher, we need a higher point. If we're pulling a patient out of a hole and they're not on a stretcher or not on a spine board, I just need to get them literally to the back of their knees. But the second they're in the stretcher, we need more height to fully clear it to, to get it out of a small hatch. Yeah, and on that scenario there, the riggers used clutches uh, for the progress capture on the two to one. Absolutely, the sound of progress. There you go. Uh, the next scenario, this one was an interesting rigging one. It was the top of the, uh, was it, uh, there was a school, the, the fire service or emergency services academy. So we're talking, what was a three or four story building? Uh, it's three or four story, something like that. Uh, when I, we, I think it was five when I think of it now. Well, you're the one that ran the stairs lots. Yeah, it was five stories. Um, and so the scenario was you had to pick your patient off the balcony off of, call it the east side of the building, bring them up over the top, and then lower them to the ground on the west side of the building. So you did something interesting with the rigging here. Let's explain that one out. Well, the thing is, is when we're pulling a patient up off one side of the building and there's no anchors on the roof, let's make that uh, yes. clear to everyone, and they're dropping down the other side of their building and there's no anchors on the roof, we have a bit of conundrum. Like, what are we going to do? This is the sort of place where we talk about anchoring to the ground and bringing remote anchors up to the roof that we can use. Now, because we're going up on one side, and, and on the ground they had anchors for us to use. On one side they had, I believe, had concrete blocks, and on the other side they had water uh, bins. Yeah, I think 550-gallon uh, water bins in cages, which was a new thing they started using this year, which made sense for anchoring. 500-gallon, not 50. Well, 500, was it? Oh, 500, there we go. Okay, bad math. But it was strong enough. Okay. Um, so, uh, so we had to anchor to these, and... One of the things was, you know, anchor to one side, raise the patient up. Once they're on the roof, switch your systems to the other side, um, lower, lower the patient down. And one of the things, you know, as we were brainstorming, we decided, well, why are we shifting systems here? Why can't we just make a floating anchor rather than a, a single direction anchor? And like, why don't we just make a floating anchor in the center of the roof that no matter which direction we pull it, for the most part, and we're looking at either pulling east, west, left, or right, it's gonna hold still. So rather than just anchoring to one side, 
and we had to send a, a, a team member down for that, and he ended up being stationed down there the whole time. Um, he anchored to anchors on both sides with a single rope for each side, and up on the roof, we tied the anchor plate in. So whether we pulled to the east or whether we pulled to the west, the anchor was, it may, we may have got a bit of stretch in the rope, but for the most part, it stayed put. And how we tightened that was on one side, we tied it off, brought it up over the roof. And on the other side, um, uh, the rigger down there used a DCD device and an inline mechanical advantage system to tension it up to hold it in place. Great, awesome, worked great. Couple of lessons learned though. Um, one lesson was uh, we had Edge Pro over the edges of the roof so that as the rope went over, we had just soft Edge Pro in there so the edge was protected. Well, what we did, and it comes out of habit, um, we went and tied our Edge Pro off to the rope itself. When we have Edge Pro like that, you know, you don't want to tie it off. We want the rope to move through it. We don't care if the rope moves through it, unlike somewhere else where we want the Edge Pro to stay with the rope. And when we did that, when we tensioned up the anchor system, it pulled the Edge Pro off the edge of the roof. And because it was tension, we had a hell of a time getting something back underneath it to protect it against that edge. The rope wasn't moving on the edge, but it was over a 90 degree flashing edge. And rightly so, the controller said, you know, it's bad luck the way the Edge Pro only shifted a couple inches, but he goes, you need to fix that. So we did. Now we lost some time fixing it. And through that, um, uh, it reminded us of a lesson we learned actually from Axel a long time ago, something he showed us, and some of us may have seen it other places, but I remember learning it from him a few years ago, was instead of anchoring one end of the rope with a figure eight or something like that that's firm, and now you always have to run back, loosen the other side, go back and forth, he said, why don't you anchor with a munter and then tie it off? And that way, no matter what point you have, you have some sort of ability to release it. And if on that other side, we had decided to use a mantra, which none of us thought of because we didn't think we'd have to release it. We may have been able to remedy our mistake a little bit quicker. It would have stopped the mistake. It wouldn't have stopped the Edge Pro from sliding off, but um, would have enabled us, I think, to remedy it a little bit quicker. So but, just but, for the people listening, you're talking a building that's 100 feet wide, five stories tall. So... When you're on the ground, one side's tightened. We used rigs with three-to-ones to tighten the rope. But what Jason's saying is if we did a muncher mule on the other side, it was on the other side. The rigger was located just out of you know, luck, I guess, or bad luck when the ropes shifted in the edge pro, which meant the rigger had to run back in through the building. And it wasn't just a straight shot. In order to get back to the other side, crack the rigs to detension the rope, retighten the rigs, then run back in through the other side in order to operate tag lines. So there was, you know, that definite piece there where if it was on muncher mules and we had the ability to slack off the other side, probably would have got away with uh, a little bit less time problems. Absolutely. And then going back to, okay, we got Edge Pro, understanding the type of Edge Pro we're putting in, not tying it off to the rope because we want the rope to move through the Edge Pro. We don't care like in some other scenarios where we want the edge pro to move with the rope a little bit to provide constant protection. And it was an oversight in all of us. None of us looked at it. It just happened. But, you know, one of the great things about our team this year was the ability to adapt and overcome. We were very calm and collected this year. You know, we had, um, it was really nice that a number of teams mentioned how calm and collected we spoke. We never yelled at each other. And I don't mean in an angry way. I mean in an excitement way. And, you know, we, we got through it. We still finished the scenario in a good amount of time. It just, you know, we could have finished in a better amount of time, right? Yeah, so just so the uh, listeners understand, raise on one side, but because the ropes are tensioned, you basically created a tension line over the top of a roof with two lines, clip the rig plate in there, and then just flip the entire system and just started pushing it off the other side. Absolutely. Once the guy's up, we just had to flip the stuff over the side, the other side of the plates. And actually, technically, by putting webbing in there, we never even had to re-click on the other side of the, the, the plate. Uh, in some cases, it, it helped. Um, we had a floating focal point. We could anchor any side, um, and it, it worked. It worked quite well. Uh, now, when it came to the the, the rescue itself, um, we had to send a rescuer over the edge, down I believe two or three stories, 
to a balcony down below to where the patient was. We had to lower a rescuer um, with the stretcher. Stretcher had to go down. The rescuer had to package um, the person, the patient, and then we had to uh, pull the patient and the rescuer. The patient had to be attended to up onto the roof and then lower down onto the other side. Um, so that's a good point, Andrew. Just for a quick interlude, how are you packaging? What are we doing there to package that patient? Um, you know, a lot of fire departments do a diamond lash or, you know, they've got to do spider straps into a board, into a diamond lash. So for Ronan, do you remember what they were doing with that? Yeah, we had um, we had the normal straps of the stretcher. Uh, I think that, I don't know what they're called. Sorry. Um, the ones that pull tight, you can break and tie knots in. And then we also had the... Um, the two pieces of webbing, um, the V up top and the inverted V down below into a central point at, at the So those belt. are Purcells, are they not, that were clipped in? I, it was I think it's, yeah, we used Purcells this time. I believe so, uh, yes. Purcells clipped through the patient's, uh, what would it be, their ventral ring? Yes, through their ventral ring as a focal point to tie them in. For them as well. So they had, they were top bottom V'd with a Purcell and then they were, but with the stretcher straps, and they also had some foot loops. So uh, that's how they were. Uh, and then, then they had an ASAP sometimes on top of that as well onto one of the two. Um, yeah, they were always backed up into the rope system, but that's how they were in the stretcher. Absolutely, yeah. Okay. Uh, so we pulled the patient up. Um, for this, like a lot of things, um, we sent someone at the edge, but always with the ability to get over the edge right away um, to assist with edge transition. Uh, a lot of times for this, a guy just over the edge, we had a we had a protocol where um, the rest one of the rescuers up top that wasn't doing the rescuing would always throw two lines over the edge um, for a main and a safety. And whether we used it or not, they were there. And should oh geez, we need someone over the edge to help with edge uh, transition. Someone could rig on ASAP on. Hey buddy, safety check. Yeah, you checked it. Cross check. I'm going over to help, and it was instant. The other edge transition thing we did, and you'll hear about it even on more scenarios, is uh, ATRIA. We, we had in, my, in the uh, top pouch of a backpack, and every single time we had a, uh, uh, someone go over the edge, we also used a T-block, and we had that set. And the idea of that is it really helped the rescuers when they're getting near the top to get at least their weight off the system. And we could hand them a Grillon or hand them something else to get them completely on the system to help with that final edge transition. We weren't fighting with two people. Um, and by having one person- just to, just to confirm, one of those static lines had a T-block on it that was rigged into an etrier that was hanging over the edge so that it was like a ladder that the rescuer or the edge people could climb as well. Yeah, um, and there's many ways you could rig it. You know, like you said before, there's no right or wrong way, but the whole point is, is to have, we talked early on when we were planning and getting ready for Grimbus to have some sort of ladder system over the edge. I looked at a few assault ladders. You know, one thing for us is weight. What are we taking to Europe, right? Um, and this uh, atria I had, had really good um, uh, webbing on the feet, this one we found, and it, it wasn't one that collapsed easy. So it was easy for the rescuer to use because sometimes atrias can be a little bit of a pain. And when you're struggling to get a guy up, the last thing you want to do is try to find a foot loop. Um, so that, that was a one side and the other side, we had lines, um, for the, uh, the, the rescue helping with the edge come over. So we lifted the patient up over the edge, lift him up onto the stretcher, uh, sorry, uh, lift him up onto the roof, um, uh, slid the stretcher over to the other side. Uh, there was, we should note, there was two, two, I think eight mil tension lines on the roof. They weren't for anchoring to, they were our no going past without fall pro. And then they had an 11 mil rig down the center of the roof, which we could hook our green lawns into. And for everyone out there, if you're thinking about what size green lawn to buy, if you're thinking about rescue, you know, the, the two, the two meter ones, just a little short, you know, um, what are they? Five or six, I believe, Mark. There's two, three and five. Usually, although you could kind two, of build three, five. Well, but so, five meter and get a leg bag. For the exactly. I, I got a five for this grip, um, the newer one, the new CSA version. That way we use it in Canada for work as well, besides rope access. And, uh, you know, time and time again, that extra length was exactly what we needed to, to have. And also, if it was a little bit shorter, we could put in a, a, a roll clip or something like that and get a little bit of a mechanical advantage to pull ourselves up as well.
anyways, we took the patient to the other side of the roof. Um, we did another safety check and put the patient on, and then we sent the patient over. Um, one error we made on this one too is uh, the controller um, thought that we were a little, I don't want to say sloppy, not as clean as we could have been with the edge transition. A rough. <laughs> a little rough. He, he actually he said to us, do you have a plan for this edge transition? I'm like, well, yeah. Well, it didn't look like it. I'm like, well, there's there's a number of things we'll do and we'll change which one we do. It's like he wanted this big grandiose plan. However, to be fair, out of all the stations we had, this was very different grimp than previous years where we had a full talk, a debrief. Maybe we should have mentioned this at the beginning. Um, you know, going through how many points you lost, how many points you gained, and the old the old street side democracy fighting for points, right? Um, that didn't yeah, exist this year. Occur. It didn't occur. But this was the one station where we actually had a good critique afterwards from it. And this was one of the the, the leaders of the, um, the 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 Grimm School in Belgium there um, at the Brussels Fire Department. And we really appreciated uh, his comments because you know what? We're here to learn. We're here to get better. Right. <laughs> yeah, if we make a mistake, call us on it. How else are we going to get better? And a lot of teams were saying that with all the other stations where they just said, yeah, you did good. And that was the end of it. And like, well, oh, and people wanted to know what they did wrong so they could even adapt for the next scenario. Didn't happen. But anyways, um, yeah, so we lowered the patient down. And um, the end of the scenario was uh, once everyone was downstairs. And this year was a little different. They allowed us to throw our stuff off the roof. <laughs> so no hard gear. But all of our ropes and all that, we had already decided, knowing that beginning of the scenario, how we we're going to derig. We knew we were going to derig our ropes, and we we're just going to throw them off the roof. And they didn't care how they looked as long as they were on the ground. And again, this year, we we'll focus more on the rescue skills and not so much on the uh, the polish at the end of the scenario. There you go. All right. So the next scenario, uh, most people refer to it as the lobster trap. Do you want to explain what we were supposed to do in that scenario? Yeah, when this came out, we were a little confused at first because there ended up being two, two sort of lobster trap loop thing or uh, pipe things we had to crawl through. Um, and we'll talk about the other scenario later. This lobster trap is basically the best way to say it is if you go to a, a kid's preschool center and they have these mesh tubes for kids to run through, or you go watch uh, um, what well, used to be the Super Value Super Dog Show, and uh, dogs are running through these uh, tubes. That's basically what the lobster trap is. It's about, I'm guessing, eight or ten feet, two four-foot, two five-foot sections, so on together. And what they do is they hang this off the side of a wall. The rule is, is um, there's well, the, the scenario is there's a patient down on the ground below it at the wall. You have to make access to the patient, uh, package them, and bring them up. The one rule is you must go through the tube on the way down, and you must go through the tube on the way up with the patient so that's the two all right so this one here was uh simple lower ttrs style on clutches if i remember correctly mm -hmm. and i think the big one i mean it would, certainly we can chat about that part of it but i, I mean lowering on clutches or mpds or ids you're lowering on a controlled descent device and a twin tension rope system we raised five to ones on each line i guess the big thing here is how did rescuer and the patient come through that and then because of the position that the stretcher is in how did you do the edge transition at the end so we, we hoisted them both up together um with the way we tie tie the main point of attachment for the stretcher the um the the rescuer can actually uh, uh slide down and hang just below the stretcher to reduce the overall profile using a, a grillon or um, our rescuer loves the aztec um so he'd lower himself, and the ASAP would go down the tail, and he could lower his profile. If he wanted to get up, he could use the Aztec to pull himself up. Or once we got up high enough, he could transition over to the atria. We are at already over the edge. Now, in previous years, we always thought how slick the pike and pivot is. And it looks slick. It's great. But over the last couple of years, every time we've done it, it takes time, you know, to set it up, to change the ropes over. And, and we're... we're multiplying the amount of communication we need, which takes more time and complicates things more quickly. And it's just not smooth, which is what we're trying to do. So this time what we did is we decided to do a pike and pivot, but we decided to do a manual pike and pivot. So as we brought the patient up vertically, 
We had two people standing up on the upper edge in addition to the rescuer over. And we basically grabbed the side of the stretcher once up high enough and we just lifted it up to the railing and manually pivoted over. While doing that, obviously the ropes were managed to suck in the slack. And we just, you know, a lot of edge transitions, we just manhandled more this year. Just get it done, get it up. You know, um, same with putting a patient over, get them over, get them down. And it, it worked very well this time, just by a guy on each side pulling up the, uh, the stretcher. Okay. Um, any other lessons learned on that one? Yeah, I want to talk about the clutches, if I could, for a yeah, second. Yeah. Because the first time you mentioned the twin tension. So the clutches are a great invention. You know, is it the end-all, be-all? You know, there's been people saying, like, it's an MPD killer and stuff like that. I do think it has a lot of advantages. But, you know, for this grip, we started talking about what are the advantages um, uh what are the advantages beyond the equipment itself? Like what other advantages does the clutch bring to us over the MPD? Both got low friction, you know, can do two person loads, no problem. Um, you know, all that great stuff can be rigged fairly quickly. Although we'll all agree that the clutch can be, is a lot more easy to rig than an MPD. But one of the key things is, is we can shark fin it. Now, it's the wrong term because shark finning what we use for Petzl. They, they, this year, the, the term double clutching was coined for this, right? So I'm saying shark fin for the guys who understand uh, uh, IDs. The same thing with these uh, clutches, but we call it double clutching. Now, what's the benefit of that? The benefit of that is, is certain times I can now use a rigger that's up top at the edge. You know, it, it depends on what we're doing. We experimented with it a few times during training. When did we have a gap? Um, when did the other rigger feel the other rigger needed to be there to manage both systems? And I think it's still a work in progress. Uh, correct me if, you're, if I'm wrong, Mark, but I think we're still trying to fully fine tune it. But it freed up a rigger for the edge transition or to, to grab an extra piece of gear or something like that. So essentially by using these clutches, not only was it slick, not only is it, you know, low friction device for MAs, some of the scenarios I had an extra person. So we'll back the bus up a little bit and go, when we had to release a rigger, we were using shunts, make the shunt great again, hooking both lines, uh, both the main lines, both the twin tension lines with one shunt, putting the MA into there and then rigging the MA back just so it was easier for one person to handle. And I mean, there's a ton of different ways to do that. We just decided to coin the term, make the shunt great again this year. And that was one way that we could have now one rigger manage those lines, keep the slack out while they were doing the manual pike and pivot with that other rigger now engaged in that front part of that system manually on that stretcher and having just one rigger left back at the anchor. Absolutely. You know, as we get all this new equipment, you know, I challenge everyone out there as we get these new systems, these new pieces of gear, uh, you know, don't just look at the gear use, look at the team dynamics. You know, how can this piece of equipment impact the team dynamics? Human factors are huge for all safety and rescue things we do. And um, this is definitely a big thing. That's a selling point to this device is a potential to gain manpower in certain scenarios so absolutely uh the next one here the balcony broken arm surprise and when we saw ollie olivier running that scenario i guess we probably should have known that it was going to be that way so uh do you want to give a quick overview of what happened on that scenario yeah um was this was i think this was our first scenario mark it was yeah yeah so you know we're all a little jacked up all, all a little excited right um and then um seeing all there was great um and him giving me the brief it was awesome but i i really made sure i'd ask some questions you know it was when when i went up to get my uh my briefing um i tried to be cognitive of not asking questions that tied our hands like don't ask stupid questions in which now they're going to say oh you must do it this way to also asking questions that we could defend should the controller say to you, 
Um, you know, why did you do it that way? Who said you could do it that way? Well, if you say the controller gave me a briefing said you could do it that way, well then it sort of gives us a bit of a leg to stand on for how we ran the scenario. And you know, later on as we talk about the scenario, it, it definitely occurred here. So the scenario was you have someone over the wall and they're down below and they have a broken arm. You must get them up. First question I asked is how do you expect them to be packaged? Worst case scenario is they're gonna say stretcher, which we're gonna do anyways. And he goes, well, you need to take care of the broken arm. I said, does the patient need to be in a stretcher? I had an unequivocal, no, manage the injury. Thank you very much. I appreciate that answer. So obviously it'll be more based on our on-scene assessment, what our rescuer gets when he sees the patient, the description back. But to me, that was a, a, a bit of an important piece of information that's a real big time saver. You know, it's the same as confined space. If we can have someone in a harness ready to clip on and go compared to someone who we now have to package into a spec pack and da-da-da-da-da because they're not wearing anything, it, it, it changes the, how the scenario works. So we had to anchor on to these big 500-gallon um, uh, water con things, cages, and we had to send a patient over the edge down to a lower balcony. So we had it all set up. We're all pretty keen. We, we, we set up our new Edge Pro that we'd been given from our friends in uh, Mechelen, okay? Um, if you look at some of the pictures, you'll, I'll, I'll let you try to find what our choice of Edge Pro is now. Um, and uh, we had to send a pa uh, rescuer down and uh, uh, get an assessment on the patient and bring the patient up. Um, as the rescuer was headed down to the patient, halfway down the wall, they said, Oh, there's another patient here in the window, and that was the that's the that's the surprise part of the scenario. Uh, balcony broken arm surprise. You have another patient. Uh, patient was sitting in the window, and um, uh, as the our rescuer went by, was already partially by by the time they saw them. They said they're sitting there, they're conscious, and that was that. So we had our first rescuer continue on to the patient they were assigned to. However, we didn't want to start hauling up the patient right away. What I want to do is I wanted to get, um, you know, from an overwatch perspective, I wanted to get boots on the ground to that second patient. And the most critical thing for me, I felt, was to first triage the two patients. Was there an emergency we needed to attend to first, or at least verbalize to our controller, our grader, that we were, we had thought about that. Um, once we got the second rescuer down, and they had to quickly rig up a second system, which uh, you know the rescue up top had no problem. I could assist him with. Um, uh, he did a triage of the person in the window, and the person in the window was just a spectator, just watching. Nothing wrong with him. So we continued with our plan. Um, we essentially walked up the wall. Uh, the rescuer behind the patient um, with the broken arm, um, putting the broken arm across the chest, making sure they're rigged in a way that they did not need to use that arm and our patient made sure they did not use that arm, got them up to the top. Then once that one was up top, then we transitioned to the second rescuer and the, the second rescuer brought the second patient up. A couple questions with that. Did the rescuer, as they went past, make sure the patient was tied off in the window? Like they were safe there? So yeah, they, they verbally said, sorry, I should have said, they verbally said the person was sitting in there with a harness on and a rope and that they were they were tied off to their point if they weren't then you could tell the patient to get back or you know as a team lead i'd have to make a decision what's then does the guy look stable does he sit there do we carry out of the person with a broken arm or um or whatever but yeah the person was tied off in the window so did you rig two separate lines or did you raise the first patient first and then go back lower those lines over and raise the second patient up um, to tell you the truth i can't remember I'm not bullshit you. <laughs> I, I honestly don't remember. Uh, this is part of some of the little nuance. Oh, I should remember. I, I don't remember. Um, we did set a set, set of lines for the uh, the rescuer to rappel down. Each rescuer was carrying a hundred foot piece of rope, which allowed them to rig a dual line system quickly up to fifty feet to make access or do edge pro or whatever. And as long as we had a master point of attachment tied by riggers, we had a place to clip into. Um, I. Honestly, can't remember. Can you? 
I, I want to say they repelled over to the second patient and we just broke into their static lines and hauled them up. Possibly that would be it. Or it would be easy to move the system over. I know we didn't re-rig a second raising system. We used the same system. That's uh, we just broke into their lines with that system and hauled them up. I, yeah. It, it would work. I, I don't remember either. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, neither here nor there. Um, a couple issues we had was once the uh, patient came up and we were all done, the controller said, uh, why did you say, no, why did you bring them up without a stretcher? Pardon? It was, why weren't they in a stretcher? Did the controller tell you you could do that? I looked at him and unequivocally said, yes, we're told we did not use a stretcher. He goes, oh, so good. Glad we clarified that. The second thing that they brought up to us was they said, when you hooked into the second patient, the one seeing the window, both connection points were to their ventral D-ring. Why did you not use one point for the, the, the sternal and one point for the ventral, two different D-rings? And I said, well, two things. First of all, we see that as a master point of attachment, okay, um, on the harness. He goes, okay. I said, secondly of all, with the way we're using our system, neither one of those two points were going to see a shock load. With the twin tension system, both those lines would be loaded. So if one failed, we're not getting any shock load um, on that, and we're not getting any drop. So therefore, when we don't have a dynamic force on the waist. However, my rescuer also told me once he got up top that he had no choice where to hook the patient to. The patient actually handed in the ropes and say, take these two. So, oh. it, so you know, I had given the controller the right answer. He was happy with my answer. But on top of that, after the fact, while we were walking away, Damien said that he was given no choice where to hook him anyways. The guy said, take these two. Done. So neither here nor there. That's grimp. That's grimp. Exactly. That is grimp. Um, but a big lesson here we learned at the beginning, which worked good, was and being tested on was clarify the important importance of the scenario, be able to support them which obviously um, uh, uh, pays off when it comes to being challenged on how we did something by someone that has a different set of eyes. Right on. Uh, last scenario we'll talk about, because we're almost kicking an hour here. Uh, you've got it written as a small tube lift. You want to describe that one? Yeah. So before we talk about that, because it's a lot, it's really similar to the, um, the lobster cage. The one I forgot to write down, I knew there was one, was the... Um, the car rescue. Oh, go into the car rescue. That was a ton of fun, actually. Yeah, that's that's what I thought. <laughs> so so essentially, we've heard a lot about this car rescue. We heard they were setting the scenario up at this bridge. And at first, before we knew about the new bridge, we were dreading the old bridge because we had to climb it last year. It was the first year where they had a rope asset scenario at Grimp, and we had to climb up to this bridge and traverse underneath it. And then just to make things more fun, we had to come back there two days later and do another scenario. Yay, joy. But, you know, this bridge seems like nothing after doing the 70-meter bridge now. It's all a matter of perspective. It's <laughs> definitely like nothing compared to China. So so what happened here was uh, we were underneath the bridge. And on the ground underneath the bridge was a river of lava. Okay, the, the idea is we could not step on that lava. Later on, I learned after it was okay to drag ropes across it. Imagine that, non-burning ropes. Anyways, uh, the lava was a no cross. We started on one side, and we had a couple of their Grimp-style cement steel anchor points. And then the other side was a, a car at an angle inside of a... Uh, uh, um, Dumpster or dumpster container at an angle. There was a patient in the car. We had to make access to the patient, lift the patient out of the car, and place them on the ground back behind the car along with the rescuer. So the only stipulation was don't touch the lava, and at least one rescuer and one patient must be on the other side. In addition to the patient, we had to take over an ambulance attendant. I believe they had to establish an IV. Yeah. So 
we had to lift them up from the side where our anchors were on and take them over to the far side. Now, what was set up for us to use, first of all, was two ropes from the anchor going up to underneath the bridge. And then a number of shallow rebelays, almost like tension lines, but obviously they droop, going underneath the bridge. But we just hooked on and slid across. We weren't um, traversing through uh, re-anchors or rebelays, the, the classical uh, Spratway, we're just pulling ourselves across. And then over the car was two ropes that dropped down. Okay. So looking at it and, you know, tell you the truth, looking at what other groups are doing, because this is one thing about Grim. If you get there after other groups, take a look and see what they're doing. Right. We can learn from their mistakes, learn from their, uh, their ideas. Um, it was a typical cross hall. That, that was the idea of it, except for the cross hall. Um, rather than anchoring all the way up to underneath the bridge on the on the near side, we anchored our cross hole midpoints on the ropes to ascend to. On the far side, we uh, anchored our cross hole pulleys up in the uh, suspension of the bridge. So we sent one person over to the far side of the bridge. So they had to climb up the ropes, go through the rebelays, and get to the far side and establish uh, two redirects. Now, that was a tough haul. They also had two 11-mil ropes attached to them to do that. Yeah, two 11-mil ropes. He had all his rigging, and he had to get through it all. And, you know, glad it was him and not me. I'll be honest about it, man. Good on him. Jeez. Anyway, so he went over and attached that. Now, the two ends of the ropes, um, oh, sorry, the the four ends of the ropes, because they were bent over, we had all four ends with us. So the two ropes... Total four ends. So uh, uh, we anchored um, those two ropes to the anchor through um, clutches. And then the other two end of the ropes came into the master point attachment where the patient will be attached. We then had someone climb on our side of the ropes and establish two change of directions for the cross hall midway. Again, two ends of the ropes came down, were anchored in to hall systems, and the other two ends um went into a uh, a cross hall um sorry into the main point of attachment for the cross hall we used a rig plate in there yeah we used a rig plate in there and what we did is to save time and actually someone commented this afterwards we actually hoisted the person up on our side and suspended in there already attached before the far cross hall anchors or uh, change of directions were established we're trying to do concurrent activity someone said well why do you do that why did you uh, hoist them up before the other side was ready. Well, I'm like, well, we can. We can hang them up. And Norm didn't mind hanging up there with the ambulance attendant. Um, and uh, and he had a little bit of alone time with her. And, uh, and, uh, and well, the second that, that Pat had made it to the far side and put it in his cross hall change of directions, we are ready to start hauling on those lines and pulling Norm across and the ambulance attendant across the bed of lava. Once Norm got over onto the other side, uh, the change of direction on the far side of the cross hall was directly above where we needed to drop them. We dropped Norm down and he delivered the ambulance attendant. Um, once the ambulance attendant had done her thing, uh, established an IV, uh, uh, we then moved one by one the ambulance attendant and then the patient to the far side of the train grounds behind the car where we were supposed to. Um, after that, uh, Norm was lifted up, the final person, and he was lowered over there. At that point, we had a de-rig. For de-rigging, Pat was up in the bridge on the far side, change of directions. He simply had to rappel down. There was already two ropes, as mentioned, that were pre-rigged. He cleared his anchors. He cleared his anchors, cleared his rigging, he rappelled down, and the Norm, who was already on the ground, pulled him over and dropped him on the ground. On our side, we had to send Damien up. He derigged the change of directions on the cross hall on the near side. Well, we derigged what was on the ground. He brought it down. We set and we put everything away. And it was actually quite a simple scenario based on what we did. It just it was a little unconventional thinking about anchoring our change of directions in the middle of the ropes or the way we had to access it or some of the um, scenario characteristics such as lava and getting an ambulance attendant over and all that. But once we got it set up, it, it moved quite smoothly, didn't it, Mark? Yeah, so this scenario for you is more along the lines of leading a team in like uh, 
what we would generally do, say in the army, was a small unit task, but that had to be solved using ropes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this was really important. You know, one thing I haven't mentioned, for every scenario this year, we brought a whiteboard. And this little whiteboard I carried on my uh, backpack, and we used it, and I had three different colored pens, and we used it to illustrate. And we actually sometimes would pass the board around us. What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? What do you want to draw? And, uh, and we used it to have the final, okay, we've all agreed, this is what we're going to do. And it allowed us to more easily visualize the tasks people were given. It was really important that people could visualize what they need to do because um, guys are given a lot more, and rightly so, a lot more um, ability to rig how they needed to rig at a micro scale. I was more worried about the overall big system scale rather than the minute details. Okay. Uh, any other comments in regards to rigging techniques or team leader or, um, you know, running that small unit? Um, hang on here. Uh, no, I, I think one of the big things is understand your team when trying to decide on the on the leadership style you're going to use. You know, our team dynamic changes in the next competition. We may have to change how we're going to lead. Um, remember, remember, slow is smooth. Smooth is fast. Um, you know, there, also remember one fire captain I had that trained me a long time ago. You say, the hurrier you go, the further you get behind. And, uh, yeah. Um, well, there we go. Thank you very much for that. Appreciate you having you on. And uh, I guess we'll chat with you next time. Sounds good.